Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> we do have that on record. That can go in the intro. I talk about mini games and systems. Mini games versus systems is the sentence. Oh, the thing I wrote. That's um, an interesting one. And my claim is that mini games are what we used to have instead of systems because we didn't have the processing power to relate everything to each other. Mm. Well, hi, I'm Bryce, <laughs> uh, and, and I'm Will. And you found yourself in side quests. Yeah, as as have we. It seems. Yeah, it just seemed like we were just going to talk about that, <laughs> whether you had other ideas or not. And so we have a couple things we want to talk about, and we want to talk about some news. Before we jump into anything, before this podcast, we agreed that we were going to not use Final Fantasy <laughs> or Super Mario... Do we just mean Super Mario Brothers, all of them? I think we can only talk about non-NES or SNES okay. Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Uh, as examples, we need our exa- we need, cannot use them, <laughs> so we're making that public now. <laughs> we, we're going to have to have like a swear jar. <laughs> yeah. So if we fail, you'll know we, you'll know we failed. But that's okay. I'm okay with failing, <laughs> and we don't actually have a jar. Yeah. No. And you know whatever. It's just a goal. I was going through and editing a lot of these podcasts, and I realized just how much we talk about those two games, right. uh, two game series, but mostly we're talking about Mario 1, Mario 3, and the original Final Fantasy. And 7. And 7. And the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> but that's our goal. Yeah. We've so already failed. We're putting our foot down now, and we may pick it up again later. Yeah, because... We're pretty flexible about that. <laughs> yeah. You got to take a step forward sometimes. So do you want to do the news first or the news last? Um, let's do the news first. Oh, okay. Because I don't know. All right. Uh, first news. Uh, we are on Google Play. Yay! Uh, I, I, yeah, I clicked some things like a week ago, and then it turns out that we're actually on there. So there's Google Play Podcasts, which I don't use myself but now your pod could probably receive our cast in many ways right we're on all of the podcast things except maybe some of them that we're not yeah but i think these are the big ones there's like the apple ecosystem there's the google ecosystem there's the stitcher is i think one of the biggest non Mm -hmm. built-in ones and then I also signed up for one that I don't remember what it's called. And that, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And I've never checked to see whether we were actually successfully on there. So we might have ended up on another random one. And then SoundCloud is actually where the files are hosted. So we have to be on there. Right. I see. And so all the data, when, when you say some small number of humans listen to our podcast, that's coming from SoundCloud. Right. Because that tracks all of the accesses from all channels. Yeah, and I try to look to see who's listening, um, and it's not very good at telling me who you are, except uh, my mom. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Um, because she is in northern Baltimore County? No, she made an account on SoundCloud, and it has a picture of her on it. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that works. So, hi, mom. <laughs> In other news, my notebook got really wet, and all of my old notes got wet, including notes about the podcast and random other projects. So if everything just gets totally crazy from here on out, it's because we no longer have a plan. Yeah, probably some notes about how to do selenium and some podcast notes and some diagrams of logic circuits will all get combined into one sentence. And then smeared across the page. (laughs) Right, that's what happened. And that's what it'll sound like. Yeah, cool. that sounds about right. <laughs> so it'll sound pretty similar to what we've been doing. Yeah, you may not notice, <laughs> but I might end more statements with question marks than usual, but only a little bit, and you might not notice. Also, this is the first podcast that we're going to put out that was actually recorded after all of the previous podcasts were put out. Which doesn't... Probably to you, all doesn't matter. And maybe it never even mattered. Maybe mm. maybe we were just recording these things in an order anyway. But somehow, I decided, and kind of we both decided that we had to keep track of what we had put out already. Mm. Somehow, I had a, like a burden of not mentioning things. I don't know, there was like a psychic burden that has been lifted that yeah. really probably never had to be a burden at all. Yeah, well, also, if when you're thinking about the news then you would like the news to be relevant to the... That's you, true, yeah, yeah. You know, it should be the most up-to-date thing. And now, I think, because we're not expecting 
three more podcasts to come out between now when we're recording and when it's actually put out it seems like we can be more topical so a like, commitment to more topical news like about old nes games which right wait we can't talk <laughs> wait sorry I'm retracting my previous statement. I didn't name them, though. Uh, the other ones are... <laughs> I got new table legs. <laughs> okay, that's that's good. My table is a door that I had stained and polished and set on top of another table. And now I took out the other table and it has its own legs that came from Ikea. And it actually, it impacts me quite a lot because it has changed the height of the table to be... A height that I find comfortable to sit at and write code <laughs> instead of a height that I find slightly uncomfortable. Yeah. Which is actually a big deal. If you are doing a lot of programming, you should sit somewhere that you find comfortable. This is my public service announcement. Yeah, it's arguable that you shouldn't sit on some place really comfortable, like the couch. All right, and maybe there's some definitions of comfort and some yeah. time scales of comfort. I but mean, I really like writing code on the couch. But if you're programming and your body hurts, do something different. Mm. That's a message from me to you. <laughs> you can do something the same, but in a different position. Yeah. And that can help. But stretch, take little breaks, probably a good idea. Yeah, I've been playing the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Nintendo Switch. And I really like the Nintendo Switch in lots of ways. And it's, it's nice and portable. And But it's handheld-y thing is not extremely ergonomic. Mm. And my thumbs literally go numb while I'm playing, and I find myself making really kind of bad decisions like, I'll just keep playing and I will navigate with the left thumbstick while I stretch out my right hand. <laughs> um, and then I do this for a little while and my hands start to feel bad and I'm like, wait, this is, no, you have to stop <laughs> when your hand is going numb. Yeah, I thought we were beyond this with modern controllers. Yeah, the, uh, the ergonomics of the Switch has maybe taken a step backwards, but... Mm. I would not be surprised if there is at least a third-party controller, because they're, you know, they're removed. Yeah, right. And Nintendo also has a controller body you can snap them onto. Mm -hmm. I don't have a system for propping the small display up. Oh. So I can use a controller. Oh. They exist. I have just could purchase one. Right. But I have Oh, yeah. They're, it's, I'm going to make a shape with my hands that the podcast audience will not be able to see. Yeah. But I'm going to do it anyway. It's basically like this. Yeah, I, I mean, I I work at the Fab Lab. I could probably go to Thingiverse and download a 3D printable one and just have it. Yeah, you, you It would could. take me a couple tries for it to print right, and it would be kind of, you know, finicky and have messed up a little bit, but it would be okay. Yeah, I vote you do that. <laughs> My vote actually has no value here in this context, but... Yeah, and now I'm envisioning a little, like, laser cut stand where they press together. Mm -hmm. That's pretty easy, too. I made one out of popsicle sticks. Yeah. I glued together a tetrahedron of popsicle sticks. It's a pyramid, if you don't remember exactly what you, a tetrahedron is. You're not up on your hedrons. <laughs> right. But I made one of those, and then the bottom had sticks that came up, and then it had little uh, prongs that yeah. held it from sliding forward. I made that in, like, two minutes. Yeah, and that, um, to be honest, sounds a lot easier than designing a filing cat and laser cutting it, Certainly which sounds faster. annoying to me. Rapid prototyping is a fine word for laser cutting if you're at a certain scale of production, but mm. rapid prototyping is maybe an even better word for a hot glue gun and popsicle sticks. <laughs> That's true. Well, it rapid prototyping with a laser cutter means that you can have a file that you can update really quickly, right. and then your second prototype takes considerably less time than your first prototype. Yeah, it might be more rapid iteration. Yeah. Iterative prototyping. Right. Because every one of those popsicle stick contraptions is, what, two, three minutes tops? Right. I mean, but that's eons in the world of... Yeah, although you also, if you're me, you're crap at doing the CAD stuff. Mm. So then you have to go through dozens more prototypes than you would otherwise. I'll, but if you want to manufacture a bunch of copies, that's great. But I, I was working on this stand for the Raspberry Pi microscope. Mm. Um, I was working on this project where I was using a Raspberry Pi camera and some 3D printed adapters to conventional microscope optics to make a digital microscope. The goal was to make a really powerful, cheap, 
DIY digital microscope that was easy to put together. And I actually think that was weirdly accomplishable and done. Yeah, it was what, Leaf Fest? Yeah. You were starting on that, and then by the end you're like, oh look, we can see tiny things now. Yeah, and I, I was surprised at how this, you know, there's the, like the fast, cheap, good, whatever mm-hmm. trio. And I feel like Pick two. in the DIY world, it's cheap, powerful, easy to build. Mm. Might be the pick two. Right. Um, and I was surprised that we could mostly get all three. Obviously, there's compromises on all three to get right. all three. But but anyway, I was working on this project and I was trying to just laser cut some plywood so that you could build a little stand to stick your sample in one spot. Like Because right? the microscope is literally, it's a series of stands. A microscope right. is an illumination mm-hmm. and lenses and a sensor. And sometimes that sensor is your eyeball. Right. And your goal is to get these things relatively precisely distanced from one right. another. And then also block other light from getting in in that same time. Right. So you want a precise arrangement of these three objects. And you want to be able to move at least one of them in one dimension mm-hmm. relatively precisely for focusing. Right. But it's just a bunch of stands. So, you know, if you were like a Jedi, you wouldn't need a microscope. You'd just uh. float the things in <laughs> front of you and, and it'd be fine. Yeah. They don't really bring this up in the Star Wars universe. No, or in science class. But I found that idea... Mm. of a Jedi doing microscopy to be really helpful in understanding what the microscope stand was doing. It was just floating some stuff. Okay. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. But so I was laser cutting the stuff and then, you know, I'd just like get the size wrong and then I'd redesign the file and then I'd get the size wrong again. I'd do some math and then I'd like scale it up because it turns out that there exist almost no materials in the world where their dimensions are the dimensions that they are labeled as. Yeah, like, for example, two by fours are not two inches by four inches. Yeah. You can take a ruler into Home Depot and measure it, or whatever your local hardware store is. Although, if you're somewhere else, they're measured in millimeters anyway, and they might be more correct. And if you're in America, you may not have a local hardware store other than Home Depot. That's true. But they're about one and a half inches by three and a half inches. Yeah. And they call these things nominal dimensions, which is a little bit like saying it's not that dimension. (laughs) right? Like half-inch PVC, when you say half-inch PVC, Mm -hmm. neither the inner diameter nor the outer diameter nor the center of the two is half inch. Yeah. And moreover, if you go up to three quarter inch PVC, the relationship between one half inch and the actual dimensions of half inch PVC is a different ratio than the relationship between three quarter inch and three quarter inch PVC. (sighs) And that's how standards work. (laughs) That's true. Somebody should come up with a new one. (laughs) Right. Uh, all right. So that's that's the news. The news. The standards still don't work. Standards still don't work. Oh, speaking of which, I mentioned earlier I was learning Selenium. Yep. And JavaScript. JavaScript being a programming language. Selenium being not specific to JavaScript, but it's a library of tools for doing automated web testing. So you can basically a robot running on your computer will click on things and check to see whether things in your web browser are there. So you can have it go to any web page and automatically run through tests right to like make sure that you know this page loads and whatever it's really confusing and i'm running into this problem with google because it's a standardly used thing uh, you mean the search engine yeah with okay the search yeah, yeah. Engine. sorry it's it is many things oh that's true i mean the search engine and the problem with google is that your first hits when searching google are tend to be the ones with more links to them and more people have looked for them in the past. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I want to clarify something because I was confused. When you said you're running into a problem with Google, I thought you were Seleniuming at Google. No. But you're using Google to learn about Selenium. I am. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Because you Google things first, and then that helps you find resources, which then help you find other resources. Yeah. And some of those resources are YouTube videos, which is also part of Google. uh, Sure. And has its own set of algorithms that you have to deal with. The problem is... Things with more views tend to be brought up first. Um, Right. And things that have more views tend to be older. And so you run into this problem where I'm trying to find out some piece of information and it's giving me this link that's three years old. And when it comes to learning these new technologies, 
that is often too old. Right. Like, that is just inaccurate information now. Yeah. And a whole new thing in JavaScript exists now that didn't exist then. And I'm trying to learn JavaScript and Selenium at the same time. And it's tricky. Yeah. And that's true for... It's not true for everything. It's not for, true for all programming environments, but... Um, Woodworking has been pretty much set. <laughs> right. Um, it's But it's also true for Unity, mm-hmm. uh, which I do a lot of Googling information about. And many of my students do a lot of Googling information about. And I... So I work with students who are doing programming and game development and things like that. And, you know, I have begun to initially caution that when they're looking something up, look at the date of the forum post. Um mm. Oh, we have some breaking news just in. (laughs) So I've just been delivered a piece of mail from the Circuit Court of Baltimore County, who has just now excused me from jury duty. I have not lived in Maryland since 2009. Yeah, I'll verify that. (laughs) Yeah. And so they gave me jury duty, and then I told them, I can't have jury duty. I don't live in your county or state. And so then I told them my address. And then at my current address, where we are right now, in Massachusetts, right, they mailed me a thing saying, why didn't you show up for jury duty? We may send you to jail and fine you. Oh, so they definitely received your address and oh, wrote yes. that in. Yes. Into a database. And then something else that saw that I didn't show up for jury duty, right. looked for my address... And then sent me a piece of mail in the actual mail. Yeah, so some human read that piece of mail you sent and inputted something from it. Possibly not a human. Uh, Okay. Because I filled out in those little squares, you know how they have like a place for each letter. I mean, it probably was a human, but they're working on making it so that humans don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of interpretation of this. Well, like, for instance, reading the letter and realizing that you don't need to find them is one of the kinds of interpretation (laughs) that a human could do and a computer can't. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh, out of system. Check. But they didn't do that. But maybe not all humans can do that. (laughs) Or not all systems are designed to allow humans to edit the database in the right way. Hmm. It's funny, they changed my call-in number to zero. Huh. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Some yeah. of the MTurk tasks I've done have been like transcribing very small pieces of people's official forms. So maybe they like farmed it up, something like that. Oh. Or it was a human, but human could not yeah. together create a uh, useful conclusion. Whoa. That's extremely believable. Or maybe they're just bureaucracy. Yeah, it's probably some of that. Well, they're the same thing, right? <laughs> like, Amazon Turk is a bit of a bureaucratic system in that it sends decontextualized labor out to humans and they send it back to a centralized system. And that's more or less what a bureaucracy is. Yeah. Hmm. I guess bureaucracy is about shuffling paper around and it's specifically about storing paper in bureaus, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, bureaucracy is all about having people actually going about the business that the government has to do or yeah. whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, it's about information and decontextualizing information and then shuffling information around. But I guess it's about separating the information from the reality so that you can respond only to the information. Right, and the ideal bureaucracy, you can't do any favors for anyone because it will treat people all the same. Right. And that's great. Yeah. Um, You don't get a special exception to the rules. Right. Because the rules are there so that everyone follows them. Yeah. And and this is really nice when it comes to, like, I don't know, safety standards of buildings. Right. Yeah. You don't don't actually probably want your fire inspector to be really chummy with your slum landlord. And so there's systems in place to prevent that from happening. Right. They will come and look and say, oh, notice how you have no fire escapes. Right. And if you are the slum landlord, and you probably do want the fire inspector to be really chummy, but instead, why don't you just put the fire escapes in your building? What are you doing? (laughs) Like, what? You're going to get sued when the building burns down. It's going to be bad for you anyway. Right. Maybe you're just hoping that won't happen. Yeah, I don't know. All the slum landlords listening to the podcast, just just put fire escapes on your building. <laughs> you can skip my apartment. Actually, we don't have a slum landlord. Our landlord's pretty good. Yeah. Um, Me too. Oh, good. So there you go. All right. That is the end of the breaking news. We should talk about video games, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's entirely, entirely possible. I want to take a brief break, mm-hmm. and then we should jump in. Great. Great. 
And now all the timers are going, everything's going, and we are now podcasting officially. Again. We're Again. back. We're back. And we're back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the traditional return to the studio sound. Um, sounds you make with your mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking. One of the things we wanted to talk about, or uh, I wanted to talk about, about games was the idea of mini games mm-hmm. versus systems. And I say versus here in a because way that... you're going to put them in a pit and have them fight each other. Exactly. Like they're Pokemon. And they're not obviously an antagonism to each other, although Pokemon are also not obviously an antagonism to each other. They just end up fighting each other. Well, yeah, because it's the dog fighting of... Right, yeah, yeah. Like, and there's... That's just a thing that you do for fun in that world. It's really messed up. Yeah, right. Why are they fighting? I don't know. Why have I put pit minigames versus systems against each other? I don't know, but it's what I want to do right now. Mm. Um, But I put them next to each other because I feel like games a long time ago in the middle of game... So I'm going to just real arbitrarily split video game history into three groups of time. Okay. And one's now, and one's the beginning, and then the other one's the middle. All right, that's very descriptive. <laughs> yeah, and video games have been around for, what, 40 years, so, 35 so years? what is one of these <laughs> time claims? Like, what's a game that came out in the middle that is not Mario or Final Fantasy? <laughs> oh, well, I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I guess my claim is that almost all of the games that I played as a kid are in the middle. Maybe all the games past the NES, but maybe even including the NES. Okay. Um, so maybe I'm going to call, like, console era the middle. It's the middle of current game history because, you know, it has to end with now. But since games are going to keep going for a while, it's not so like the are middle. Are you saying that right now, from now and into the future, is a time period and everything from the NES until now is... No, 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 no. I'm saying there's a modern, a contemporary period okay. that includes now. I can get more behind that. Um, as a... And that maybe it's like NES through PlayStation is the middle. Hmm. And then all the games that I never played because I was too young are the beginning. But I've read a lot of things about them. And I have played some of them. They were on PC. Mm-hmm. Some of them were on the oscilloscope. Um, <laughs> the hit new system. And these are early things. And it's very easy to like ignore them and pretend that they didn't happen. But they're really important. Pong is a really important game. Um, and the Atari. Was yeah. The, we had yeah, the, one of those. Right. And I think the Atari is like the, the, the end of the beginning probably Mm. in my model so historically this lines up with other people's descriptions of eras because there was the video game crash right yes the 80s there was a bubble like the housing bubble or the tulips back in the ancient dutch times not that ancient but old so there are all these different right or the tech boom the tech boom it's the dot-com thing but it happened with video games earlier yeah and just like how Amazon came out of the tech boom, it was one of the many dot-coms that got a lot of funding and, and all that stuff. It came out, and while many, many things failed because they're like, if you have a dot-com, they'll throw money at you. Right. Right now, I think we're going through something like a blockchain boom. Right, yeah, yeah. I've heard many people joke about how if you just say that your, I don't know, furniture store has blockchain technology... Then somebody will throw money at you. Right. So, and there have been instances of this literally happening, where people have mentioned blockchains in various press releases, and mm-hmm. their stock prices have gone up. And the speculation that I have read is that this is just an exploitation of algorithmic stock purchasing, oh. um, and that it is not that someone is like fooled by Pizza Hut's new blockchain pizza. <laughs> so we've taken people's mass hysteria over. Yeah, we gave the mass hysteria to robots <laughs> so they can mass hysteria for us, but it doesn't make it better. Man, that takes a load off our shoulders. Man, I was so much work mass hysteria Yeah, so now you, all you have to do is mention Tulip in a tweet, and all the Dutch robots are going to come. Oh, so now that we've mentioned blockchain in this podcast, we, yeah. I have to add it to the description. Yeah, I assume the money's going to start coming in. We're going to have to invest in rakes for the raking of the money. <laughs> so, just like, just like how Amazon came out of the tech boom, Nintendo came out of the video game crash. The NES, or the Famicom, came out right before everything failed, started going terribly. Right. And they did a few things that made sure that they kept the quality of their things up. So they did some DRM things. 
so it was very hard to put out games for the Nintendo that Nintendo couldn't license. Right. And it's funny because I personally think of DRM as a nuisance and right. not very good. But this is the thing that made Nintendo work. Well, it's the walled garden thing, mm-hmm. right? It's why there's a higher average level of quality of things on the iStore, Apple Store. Well, there maybe was, but that's not... It does help. Yeah, I'm, I don't know these things. Yeah. I'm just maybe saying words. There's some very tremendously large number of games that come out on the App Store every day. Right. Like, in the thousands. Yeah. And most things that come out get zero downloads or approximately zero downloads. I guess in the past it was true that actual humans definitely had to look at things on the app store and approve them Mm -hmm. and actual humans didn't have to look at things on the Google store and approve them. Well, you also don't have to go through the Google store in order to download things. That's true, but it was also very... I literally put a processing project on the Google Play Store by clicking, like, four buttons in 2005. Oh. No one downloaded it. Right. I'm sure. I probably did. (laughs) Just to test. Right. So it has one download. Yeah. And maybe you asked somebody else to download it to see... Right. And to be clear, this was not me making a project and then wanting everyone to play it, but then never publicizing it. It was me wanting to test whether I could put something on in the Google Play Store. Right. And the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. And it was like Pong or something. Oh. It well, might not even have been that elaborate. Right. It might have been one of my architecture projects. I like compiled it. Just like clicked compile to, you know, Android. Mm. And... Nice. Uh, why were we talking about this? I cannot remember. Right. So I divided the era of video games into three, oh, okay. three parts. And I claimed that the Atari was the end of the beginning and the NES is the beginning of the middle. Right. And that... Uh, I'll, I'll at least give you that the NES is the beginning of the middle. Yeah. And then the end of the beginning is... I don't know when... I don't and know they overlap. Was... So, so right. you know, it's a fuzzy boundary. But right. And then my end, my end of the middle is extremely personal. And it just has to do with my childhood. I'm sure. Because I think the end of the middle is the PlayStation 2. I think that the PlayStation uh-huh. 2 is the first modern console okay but that's mostly because it's the first console i didn't buy yeah so the playstation 2 is interesting maybe i'll actually just say it's microsoft and the xbox and like halo or something i'm gonna go with the modern era starts when video games are predominantly being played over the internet okay that's an interesting one so we get major multiplayer online first-person shooters so you get your online halo i mean this is just one of the things yeah i yeah i don't know also world of warcraft coming up huge so it might be around the 360 or later in the playstation 2 original xbox console generation yeah i think these are all all these things are like roughly contemporaneous but maybe what i'm doing is saying that those are the things that came out and happened in the years when i would have been in college if i was in college maybe that's my definition of the end of the middle right which is obviously as i said is very personal and actually just seems to have to do with my adolescence um (laughs) yeah i think that defining it based on online play Mm mm-hmm is probably also more or less lines up with Well, one of the things that ends up being true is that it turns out the history of the internet and the history of milestones in my own personal adolescence line up pretty well because Mm. of, you know, my life and the time I was born. This is probably true, roughly speaking for everyone, that there is some new technology that is, like, mapped to their lifespan. Um, Right. And the internet is, I think, the new technology that's mapped to my lifespan. Right. People growing up with the printing press first being made and movable type. So I've divided the world of video games into these three things. And I'm going to say that in the beginning, video games were built around a mechanic. Mm -hmm. Like a single mechanic, usually. Like breakout. Right. You Um, you bounce the ball up, it hits a block, and then you got to hit it back up again before it falls past you. Yeah. That's a very clear mechanic going on there. Um, And then... In the history of video games, we're looking for more complexity. We're looking to create richer experiences, more varied experiences. And there's a drive towards narrative. And one of the things that the drive towards narrative does is cause people to be interested in modeling many different kinds of things in the same game. Because most stories contain 
more than one kind of thing. Like if you go to a movie, there's going to be a scene where someone stabs someone and there's going to be a scene where someone talks to someone. And there's probably some driving of cars. Right, and someone's going to kiss someone. Right. All of these things are different elements. These could all be the same movie. Yeah. You wouldn't be... If all these things were in a video game, you might be like, this is like covering a lot of ground here in these mechanics. But if you watched a movie, you wouldn't be like, this is weird because I don't know what kind of movie it is. Mm-hmm. Is it a stabbing movie or a kissing movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> Although, um, in The Princess Bride, that is an open question. Right. <laughs> it's, in fact, maybe the point of the movie. Yeah. Is that it's both a stabbing and a kissing movie. And somehow you can teach children that these things are possible in the same thing. The first thing that happens in that movie is a video game. Yeah, that's right. And he's playing baseball, I think. And so he's coming from the world of Atari. Although I will say that there is the game, the game Krull. Yes. I've mentioned this before, I think, on the podcast. And I'm going to say... It's it's the dark... No, it's not the dark game. That's the other game. That's Riddick. Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Completely unrelated. Also, like, five console generations apart. So, Krull is based on the movie, Krull. And this is why the two are in my brain together. Okay. Because they're both movie video game tie-ins. Right, and they're the best ones. And I think that's the context that we talked about this before on this podcast. Almost certainly. So, Krull, for the Atari, it has minigames. Right. There's three parts. There's a sort of Space Invaders style game where guys come down from the top, you shoot them only you throw swords at them i guess i don't sure really know yeah it's one of the few games and this is really interesting where when the princess gets kidnapped you play a mini game first to protect her oh and now in other games you know there's been some narratively relevant scenes where you actually get to fight things and then at the end you get a cut scene where the princess gets kidnapped right yeah you you're forced to lose in some way right And that's what happens in this, but it's just like Space Invaders, and when you lose, Mm -hmm. she gets taken. And conveniently, being like Space Invaders, it is designed that you must inevitably lose, right? Arcade games are designed that you must inevitably lose. Yeah, and so that's fine, and they just send more people. I think it's possible to survive for a really long time. Right. And then that's just all the game is. You're like, oh, I guess I'll stop. But here's what's great, they take her, and then you get the Ride the Horses minigame. Which is essentially a cutscene where you're on horses and they go across the scene. Mm-hmm. What's important here is that this is like a quick time event. Okay. On the Atari. So there's the crawl, which basically kind of looks like a swastika. It's not really the best like yeah. design choice I think you could have made. But there's this little thing at the bottom and it's like the weapon you need to beat the end boss. Okay. Because there's a boss. Right strangely, in an Atari game, which has not happened in any other game that I'm aware of for the Atari. So then you get to the side, and then you go to the Spiderweb minigame. Okay. And you start in a spot, and there's, like, exits and entrances, and you have to you have to jump over things to get to the part where it will tell you which direction you have to go in. Okay. And then you have to jump to that place. But if you touch anything, then the spider comes after you. So you have to, like, leap over these things moving outwards. And then when you get there, you're back on the horses. All right. And then if you have the crawl, the thing that you had to pick up, and you went to the right place, then suddenly you're playing Breakout. And there's this monkey-looking thing. And you're, like, shooting a crawl? Yeah, and you throw it up. But here's the thing. The guy or... (laughs) Throw it up. Yeah, it's very spiky. I would not want to throw it up. Yeah, I know. Ugh. So you fling it in an upwards direction, (laughs) it bounces off things, and if you don't catch it, then you run out of crawls. Oh. And, because it's like a boomerang, but it doesn't come back to you, it just bounces in your direction. And then you have to go back. And And get more crawls. Go get more crawls, go to the spider web. So it has grinding, and like a side quest. Yeah. But it's not a side quest. No, it's like... You're on a quest. Yeah. It has these parts. And much, much later I saw the movie, which is not very good. Well, I don't know. It's not very good. Great. (laughs) I don't care. And they talk about it in Spaced in one episode. Okay. That is good. Which is good. So there you go. It has the teacher from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in it. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. I, yep. (laughs) I don't know who that guy is, but I can 
sum it up in image. I've seen him in precisely two movies. Yep. That's it. He's the wizard that they have to get at some point. Yeah, so there's this minigame, and obviously you're placing this set of minigames in the early era, which problematizes part of my claim. Right. I'm saying that this is an exception to that... Yeah, to that idea. And it's funny, because there's a certain sense in which this feels very rich, because you Mm. have three kinds of experiences... Might even be four That are being represented with three kinds of game mechanics. Mm -hmm. But there's no relationship between them. So there yeah. is a numerical relationship where, mm-hmm. like, the number of crawls you have is uh-huh. related to... Things you do can carry through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the mechanics themselves aren't related. And, and this, the idea of making games more complicated by, like, essentially grafting multiple games on top of each other mm-hmm. is a really common one in what I'm terming the middle era. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of examples of this. Last time, we talked a little bit about Star Control 2. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's And we is, played it. We're adding this to the docket for this podcast. We have to talk about how Star Control 2 went. Oh, yeah. Right, and Star Control 2 has a navigation game and a mm-hmm. conversation game and a resource pickup game and a combat game. Mm-hmm. And that's probably it. Okay. There might be more games, but that's all I can come up with right now. Mm -hmm. But that's a bunch of games, and they all relate to each other in that the results of one game affect the other games. Right. But they are all completely distinct in that they have completely different control schemes. You do entirely different things. Mm Mm-hmm. And the bunch of games that I'm, like, are leaping to mind now. Right now I'm thinking about the NES Ninja Turtles game. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's great. Right. So you've got your running around the world map game. And it's essentially you're picking levels. Yeah. Deciding which sewer to climb down. But that's fun. And there's not a lot to that one. I think you have to dodge cars on the street. Yeah, you have to drive places somehow. Mm. I remember driving being a thing. Yeah, I don't remember. Anyway, I've played it some amount. And I, then there's the, you have to defuse the bombs in the underwater. Yeah, level. and that was really hard. Was really hard. And that's where you got stuck and died over and over right. again. So I don't know if I've played really very much past that. Yeah. And you had to go, you go places and when you died, you lost the, the turtle who died. Mm, right, but then you but then you could play as the other one. You, yeah, and you could play as the other one. Then you could rescue them by playing uh, certain things, okay. if I recall correctly. Man. But that's a that's a really great example. The reason I think it's a really great example is because I remember that game feeling really rich. Yeah. And that was what was so awesome about Krull. Way before its time, it was like, this game is amazing because it has all these parts. It just felt so full. As an actual experience and a narrative even, or, you know, like, I yeah. do this and then I have to do that and I, I need to be able to make sure I get the crawl when I'm on the horse or I'm just going to have to redo it all over again. And so you feel very triumphant when anything good happens. So, like, when they started adding these features to yeah. the games, they just felt so much bigger and a better experience overall. And, yeah, there's a game, I think it was called, oh my, is it called Rebel Assault? I think it was called Rebel Assault. It was a Star Wars game. And it was a mid-90s, maybe late-90s game. And there was, like, a rails shooter part and a first-person shooter on a starship part. And I don't remember. There was, like, a series of things. And it was, like, I play a tiny bit of Star Fox. It's, like, bad Star Fox plus bad Doom. Was it after Star Fox? I don't know. But I'm using Star Fox to mean rails shooter. Yeah. In space. <laughs> Where you're supposed to be in a ship. Yeah. And it was like a tiny bit of bad doom because there was like a first person bit. And then mm-hmm. I don't remember. I had a series of things like that. And I thought this game was really, really cool. I loved it. I played it. I was like, this game is amazing. I feel like I'm playing Star Wars. It had the Star Wars soundtrack. So that was a big deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. And we've talked about how Star Wars games just have really awesome sound design for free. Yeah. You're like, oh, just laser cannons have a sound, and droids have sounds they make, and right, and there's like little engines. like orchestral stabs you can play when right. something cool has happened. Right, you're like, uh, we got John Williams <laughs> to do the soundtrack for our video um, game, and so it is just totally awesome. And I'm sure there's a lot about that, and the fact that it's a Star Wars universe, and you know the Star Wars universe, and but I remember being like, this game is so awesome and so immersive, and I feel like I'm playing Star Wars, and the idea of playing Star Wars is like a really cool idea mm-hmm. and then later on in my life i was like looking back at this game I was like this is a game is literally a bunch of bad copies of other games stapled to each other mm-hmm. but 
And I say that, and I don't say it meaning that it's a bad game. Mm-hmm. And so the interesting thing is having a bunch of bad copies of games stapled to each other can produce a good game in the right mix. And so this middle era game, in order to provide all this richness, we tended to be like, let's just stable games to each other. And then now, Mm -hmm. because we have a lot more power in our computers and our programming and our teams are giant, we tend to try to produce these like really elaborate systems where you can do lots of different things and they're all related to each other. Mm. but you don't switch modes. Yeah, I will say, I don't think that we are fully away from stapling minigames to each other. Certainly the dialogue minigame has not ever been integrated into any other kind of game. No, oh, except the Woods one. The Oxenfree. Oxenfree, yeah, yeah. That's, yes. (laughs) Sorry, Night in the Woods is a different game, but they, they came out around the same time. Yeah. And so they often get talked about. Yeah, and Oxenfree is a really great one mm-hmm. to talk about. But the idea in Oxenfree is that you are moving around and you don't stop moving around to have conversations. You're like wandering around this environment that you're in with your friends. And so you're talking while you're doing things. And so you can interrupt other people's conversations. They built in a bunch of interesting game systems around... Like, the dialogue system involves people being cut off and jumping back into what they were saying before relatively gracefully in a way that sounds very conversational. Yeah, and uh, the key presses you use to make dialogue choices are the same kinds of key presses you use to do other things. Um, So if you're playing the game with a controller, it's really interesting because it is more or less a point-and-click style adventure game like in its execution or its like overall presentation but it's controlled as a 2d platformer more Mm. or less Mm. so you push a thumbstick to move in a direction um Mm. and this gives the movement an immediacy that like feels really connected to what you're doing that's different from like how you feel with a point and click i feel like there's this level of indirection between the character and you like in a point and click adventure game it's more like you're telling the character what to do because of this layer of indirection. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. Rather than you are the person and you are doing those things. Right. And the immediacy of the movement mechanic in this kind of narrative game was actually relatively rare and, and felt novel to me. But coupling that with the immediacy of the dialogue mechanic where dialogue options pop up and you must press a button uh-huh. to cause them to occur. And it's one of the four, you know, if you're playing with a traditional Xbox or PS right. whatever controller, it's one of the four right-hand thumb buttons. So I do believe that in that game, if you play it on an iPad, is just a point and click. Right. Samantha had played it. Yeah, yeah, and we talked about it actually last time we were hanging out here. Oh, um, nice. And so you can just tap and then go there. So it can feel the other way, but with a controller is... I mean, I... It feels very different. Yeah, and I'm sure it's still a good game when you play it on a a touch device Mm -hmm. because it's well-written and well-done and there's lots of things that are wonderful about it. Mm -hmm. But I think it is probably less powerful because I was really struck and impressed by the way that the movement and the dialogue all felt like of a piece together. Mm -hmm. Um, And it felt very connected to the controller and the control scheme. Nice. So what other systems are you thinking about? Right. So I guess like when you talk about system games, there's like... I don't know. So I guess the first big system game in my mind is like Grand Theft Auto. Where there's a bunch of different kinds of things that happen. Mm-hmm. but you don't radically shift between modes in order to do them. Right. Well, one thing that's interesting about that, and especially that as an example, is the systems happen in the same game space. So, like, you can walk places or you can drive cars places. And then you transition to them by playing the mini game of throwing somebody out of their car. Yeah. But when you, you can walk and drive to the same place... From one place, go from point right. A to point You're not in a different map view when you are mm-hmm. driving. Right. As right. opposed to, say, like, no, I can't talk about that game. <laughs> <laughs> in your hypothetical fantasy battling game, you might be walking around in a world map and then get sucked into a battle. So you're actually right. two totally separate experiences. Yeah. But it's like some Warrior. some yes, Dragon Warrior is very good. Um, you did it. I did it. I pulled out just in time. So you in Dragon Warrior, you're on the world map, and 
then suddenly you're in a battle. It like stops you being in the world map and starts you being in the battle screen. Yeah, and if we think of those as like two prototypical modes of video games, then Chrono Trigger becomes a really interesting middle space. Because in Chrono Trigger, the enemies are wandering around on the world map. Mm. You run into them. And you go into battle mode, but there is a an avoiding enemies on the world map mini game, and there's a fighting those same enemies game, and so it's like slightly more connected. Okay, yeah, Zelda Two has something similar. Yeah, the grass, the little blobbies come. Yeah, oh yeah, man, I love Zelda Two. I think that game is so mm. good. All right, we'll talk about it more in the future. Um, but so Grand Theft Auto is like my first prototypical example of like a a systems game, and it's interesting if you're thinking about it from a gameplay perspective it still kind of decomposes into mini-games, mm. right? You can be like, there's a driving game that I play sometimes, uh-huh. and then shooting things game I play sometimes. Right. But they're programmed into the same environment, and you can seamlessly move between them. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm thinking about Shadow of the Colossus. Yep. Which is a fantastic game. I'm not sure if this strictly fits, but you definitely... It never cuts, ever. Right. And you can walk around, you can ride your horse through the same space, you can climb things, and you use the same set of interactions to interact with the environment that you do to interact with the enemies, of which there are only 12 in the entire game, which is brilliant in its own way, and that game is so good. There are only boss fights in that game, and they're all puzzles to solve. You have to stab them in their magic bits, which glow. Yes. (laughs) Um, So they have magic bits, you have to stab them. And that's the whole concept behind that game. And you have a sword and a bow, but you don't... There's not a separate mechanism for climbing them as there are from climbing a rock. Right. So... And they're large. And they're very large. So you climb them. Most of them are very large. One of them is very small. I mean, by very small, I mean like taller than you as a person, but not a lot taller than you as a person. So very small for a colossus. Very small. A tiny colossus. And that one is fast. And challenging. That's all I'm going to say about that one. But the idea of having things that you can do and then different situations that you can apply those things that you can do rather than having I can do this thing at this time and then we're going to separate out from that and do this other thing at this other time. Right. And I guess that's one of the main thing that makes something a system rather than making something a mini game. Even though the horse riding segment in that game is different than just walking around as a person. Right. And climbing just something when you have all the time in the world and you know you don't worry about being crushed by a giant rock monster then is different than doing that when you are in combat. You can recontextualize these actions. So they are different systems that you can choose to be applying at different times, I guess is right. one way to look at those systems. Are there other kinds of things that are systems that you're thinking about? Or So I'm thinking now of a, a talk I listened to by uh, Jonathan Blow, who is the designer and I think lead programmer for both Braid and more recently The Witness. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a somewhat polarizing figure in game dev in some ways, but not getting into any of that stuff. And I think Braid is a really great example of a system. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about making puzzles. I think Portal is a really great example of a system as well. And I think both of these games get mentioned a lot in the same sentences because they're the first examples of really, really systems-based puzzle games that people found really compelling in like the modern era. It's funny because they're also heavily based on a mechanic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of really good puzzle games, actually. And there's a lot of puzzle games that are based on, like, mechanical systems. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the things that people have described as puzzle games in early video game history are things like point-and-click adventure games. Okay. Or maybe not described as puzzle games, but the things in games that are described as puzzles Mm -hmm. are things like push a stone to make a thing open up or okay the things that are like arguably not all that puzzly <laughs> is one thing i'll say mm-hmm. but he describes point and click adventure games as being programmed with a series of if then else statements okay. um you know or like lookup tables or something where it's uh-huh. like if i click this thing onto right. this thing this happens right And he says that there is some fundamental architectural difference in your game if you are approaching your puzzles in this really deep systemic way. Okay. And that as a programmer, you should notice 
how deep your puzzle system is by whether you are making a bunch of conditional combinatorial explicit programming statements or whether you're making a bunch of rules and letting them interact with each other so one thing that i was thinking about especially about those puzzle games braid and portal specifically is that what they're doing there is a mechanic that you think of as the mechanic yep that is like the thing that you think about them yeah braid has rewinding time right portal has portals right Uh, you know you can punch two halves of a hole stapling space to each other right your your space stapling problem that is one system you can think of that as one mechanic but those are also being attached to things that you just don't even notice anymore right so braid has your side-scrolling platformer yeah with time rewind and so those are two very different systems they're orthogonal to each other really but they make them interact. Right. Well, it turns out time mm-hmm. is deeply related to sides or rolling platformers. Right. And space is deeply related to first-person shooters. And in fact, time is also related to first-person shooters. Right. And so that's where Super Hot right. comes from, maybe. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. Um, Which is another good example of systems yeah. interacting with one another. And obviously, space is related to platformers. And that, like, picking time and space as your seed of your base mechanic is a pretty rich <laughs> seed. Right. It's going to connect to other aspects of your game pretty easily. Right. And so these things have two separate mechanics that are their own systems. You have gravity in both games and you have moving and jumping and whatever, you know, your control systems around your character. And then you also have this other thing of space folding in one and time manipulation in the other. And so those things are... Those are examples of systems interacting with each other rather than having separate things that you have to... Right, yeah. If Braid had two different things where you did side-scrolling platformers and then occasionally played a time-rewind game, uh-huh. it would be a less powerful game. But maybe would have been found on the Super Nintendo. Right. Might have been very great then. Right. And in fact, it happened on the N64 because that's what Zelda... Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Is that Ocarina of Time? I assume. There's yeah. time in the name. Yeah. Where you are in the world and then you can set the world to a different time. And they've built this into a thing. But it's, let's go switch modes that we're in right now. Yeah. You're not watching or making the time rewind. But you can interact with time being at different states. Like right. there's the seeds that you plant places in like yeah. a little... And indeed, I think even in Chrono Trigger, there's like a very small number of time puzzles where you do something in one era and Mm. then you return to a future era and something has happened. Right. Planting plants is good. Yeah. Planting seeds is both literal and also a good metaphor for this sort of thing. So that's how you know it's a good mechanic. All right. So that's, I don't know, and versus is obviously the maybe wrong word to use here right. when I say minigame versus systems, and I think one is transitioning into the other, but I'm not actually fully convinced that the push towards totally systemic things is necessarily all that great because it turns out having separate kinds of experiences and framing them with separate mechanics. Uh, a lot of my favorite game experiences that I remember are from these really disparate, this kind of mini game based complexity. And I think it's like a really interesting way to create complexity and immersion. Right. That's good. Um, cool. I think that we should talk a little bit about Star Control 2. Yeah. I want to take a break. Yeah. And then let's do that. Yeah. And then, then we'll, we'll wrap up. Yep. Yeah. All right. And we're back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hi. <laughs> hi. Will poured himself a beer and the head on the top of the beer was very structural. I was noting that it was very much like the descriptions of the ocean in Solaris. Right. But we also both started interacting with dead ex-lovers. <laughs> that was the other connection. Yeah. It was really weird. <laughs> Especially because... I don't have any. (laughs) Moving on. So we are back and we'd like to talk about Star Control 2. Uh, Yeah, which we played a little bit of. I would say we played the tutorial. Okay. I would say that we went through the whole first phase of the game. It has all the little bits getting Fwifo to join your team Mm -hmm. um, after Pluto. Pluto is the last planet Mm -hmm. on the solar system, right? Like you've done the solar system. And then from there, the game kind of opens up and a bunch of things happen. So I had never played this game before. As you know, if you had listened to the last podcast. Except for like five minutes once and then you quit in rage. Yeah, well, okay. So I died and you claimed that you could save before the battle. No, and that was false. 
strictly false in this first battle or alternately false in all battles in the re-release and i'm not sure okay when you get into a fight in general in the game it brings up a menu that you can save in okay and so i thought that you could save before that battle and that menu didn't come up because it was like a special cinematic thing Mm. or because something is different in the re-release and i'm not sure Hmm. Um, okay that was the only battle i think yeah yeah yeah. so mostly i was playing we did record ourselves playing it but we lost the screen capture somehow yeah it became like a 54 minute screen capture of the 17th frame that's very strange yeah it Uh, was a weird obs it had to do with the fact that we like switch resolution a million times i don't know uh, you can't expect software to work under those conditions (laughs) yeah it's very old software running on new hardware yeah and obs is trying to interact with your video thing and Mm -hmm. it doesn't expect the resolution to suddenly get to like 640 by 480 (laughs) and in fact and in fact some of the full screen obs capture was full screen and then some of it was a single 640 by 480 rectangle in the top left corner of the screen (laughs) with black all around it and then that was what was frozen for the (laughs) 54 minutes all right so it's like a really interesting series of bugs yeah which we didn't know because we were playing a game in full screen. Right. So mostly I played this game, but we recorded the audio for it, which one day might end up out there in the world. I don't really want to do anything with it. No, it sounds... Now. But, so we, we narrated it. Yeah. It's all text. It's very dialogue heavy. Also, it was mostly your dialogue heavy. So I was being the main The captain. The yeah. captain. And Will was being the everyone else. And it turns out most of the game is other people talking a lot. Right. But it was very fun, and we were modifying the dialogue as we went because it was more fun to change how people said things a little, and yeah. sometimes they just talked longer than... Right, it became boring. Yeah. Um. And so we played for a couple hours. It was like two hours. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And I still maintain that the starship is not fun or easy to fly because i played it Um, and i died so so will had to do the fight so you're so okay so i'm gonna just have to demand that you describe which mode you're (laughs) flying the starship because in fact the game consists of a series of mini games right in battle yeah it is not fun or easy to fly yeah that you can just get blown up yeah that first fight is in fact too hard yeah it's weird Mm -hmm. because they clearly thought about it a little bit (laughs) in order to make it easier because what they do is give you one of the easier enemies to fight Mm. and cripple the enemy starship so that enemy normally has a cloaking device Mm. and the cloaking device is not working so it has a very simple Mm. attack pattern that said you're starting with a really shitty ship Okay. Because there's a progress element to the game where you start with the ship that basically can't do anything and you collect resources and build it up and it becomes ultra effective. Right. Um, Super effective. But that first fight is too hard. The other thing is you were just thrown into navigating. It's like saying, here, play this mini game. You can just get blown up. Yeah, it's funny. It has literal no explanations of any kind. Right. Which is very common. Like there was a manual. Mm-hmm. I remember I've actually read it a bunch of times. <laughs> um, not the like gameplay part, but because the manual has like a story part in the back. Yeah. But the manual presumably told you things like press the forward button to apply thrust. And you know, those are things that you didn't have trouble with because you've played video games. Oh, but. but- but it didn't ever tell you that that was going to happen. Right. You're just suddenly there. And the enemy ship flies straight at you, breathes fire at you. Yeah, and kills you. If you get in range, it kills you in seconds. Yeah. Like and, two of them. Right. And I didn't know which way the ship was pointed. Yeah, that not clear. That that and it's way. interesting to me because I must have just played so much of the arcade game mm-hmm. side before ever going to that fight. So it has another mode that is just fighting. Yeah. Two players can play on the same keyboard. Yeah, it's called Melee. Um, And it's interesting, so the original game was a strategy oh. tactics game. This time, we played that 
before we went in. Right, yeah, and, and my claim was that we should play this game, and then you'll have a handle on the fighting system, and it didn't help you, that much. You can't see, but my head yeah, is Bryce shaking. Yeah, Bryce's, yeah, it's, it's not nodding. No, it's, it's shaking. the opposite of nodding. I, I think the opposite of nodding is kind of still nodding. Yeah. <laughs> it's perpendicular nodding. It's, it's right. But... <laughs> So, just, so there's three axes. Chris has rotated his head in a different direction. Um, <laughs> you can imagine any direction you want. They got um, it. Yeah, and so I thought, like, oh, let's play this game, and then you'll get a handle of the combat. And I think that was, like, true-ish, but it wasn't fully true. And it turns out I think that fight is, like, woefully poorly designed. Yeah, the first um, fight should be for, like, a probe that doesn't shoot you or move. And it's also interesting because they're very smart about that with the moon landing sequence, mm. right? There's a moon landing sequence and there's all these things driving around on the moon that you can shoot if you want to. Oh, yeah. But they're just little rovers that don't hurt you. Right. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, you have landed on the moon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The landing is not part of the game. That's handled for you. Although, to a certain extent, it's almost unclear why. Because the game does, in fact, just consist of a bunch of fun minigames stapled to each other. Why not add Lunar Lander? Well, at a certain point, they had to publish. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And the reason I really wanted to play it then is because we were talking about narrative. Mm-hmm. And writing. And game right. writing. And I would say that the cutscenes... They're not cutscenes, but the... The dialogue, dialogue tree sections. Segments. Yeah. I don't think I would do them that way, precisely, because they're very long, mm -hmm. which isn't inherently a problem. And that's funny, too, because the dialogue with your, your little friend on Pluto mm -hmm. um, is a very, very long dialogue. Yeah. And it's uncharacteristically long. Okay. And it's a kind of thing where, in retrospect, it's very funny how long, it, right? Because you're convincing this guy to join your fleet. Right. You're not really certain that you have a goal in this conversation. Right. Which is one of the things that's so interesting about it being that long. Like, I would consider that a reasonable boss battle in air quotes. Uh-huh. Right. If, if dialogue was going to have a boss battle. Right. And so you've been working on this. And you're like, I think I can talk this guy. And right. you knew that there was this person on Pluto and you could go talk to them. If you talk to them right. right, you could get them to join your team. But that's not what it is. You're just there. Yeah. It's definitely a pretty interesting decision to throw that much and that kind of uncharacteristically long of a dialogue. But I think it also creates the idea that you can cause results by having conversations in a certain way. Mm. It's a very easy conversation to win. It's very hard to have a fight with Fwifo. You can accidentally have a fight with Fwifo, but you really have to just do it. You have to just say, I will kill you now. Yeah. I don't care about anything. You Like, you only come off as a heartless jerk if you pick any right. of those things. Yeah, because Fwifo is a pretty sweet guy. He's yeah. nice. He's scared of everything. Right. He puts up a mild front. Yeah. It's like made of cardboard. Yeah. And the dialogue in the game, the alien races have their very precise personalities. It would be problematic if they were actual species. The thing you would be doing is incredibly problematic stereotyping because all the alien species have like a single personality. But it's very... Yeah. But that's true in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, right. Mostly. As long as you're not making your species stand in for ethnic groups in the world, oh. I'm cool with you giving them personalities. And I Which think... they have done on Star Trek. Yeah, and that's bad. worse. And I think Star Control 2, I'm not impugning it in this way. I right. think it sidesteps all those issues more or less. Okay. I've only met that one... Fuifo. Fuifo? <laughs> Fuifo the spathy, yep. <laughs> they got a bunch of eyeballs sticking out of eye stalks. Yeah, and their ships are designed like their heads. So yeah. they got a bunch of stalks and, and balls. And there's, the um, they have a great ship because their single trait is that they are cowardly. So their ship is incredibly fast and maneuverable. And it has a front-facing, like, tiny gun. And then a rear-facing homing missile system <laughs> that's, like, their actual weapon system. That's um, and the game is full, filled with like that kind of thing. So that's really interesting because that's an example where the system of one thing is affected by the system of the other in some small way. Right, because there's an underlying thing that is happening to all the systems. Right, they're being held together by the narrative, which is cowardly person talks yeah. like this. And that also informs how they are affected in the other system, which is they shoot stronger behind them than in front of them. Yeah. Which um, is clever. They're also called the backwards utility tracking torpedoes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it was interesting. 
I don't know. If you are used to modern games, this game is not going to help you play it. No, not way. at all. That's true. And that's really interesting. So, and I think it kind of harkens back to a time when you just didn't have games. Mm. So if I had died in that fight, I would have just rebooted and played again because I spent my $50 on right. that game. That was my Christmas game or right. something. I also knew that I died the last time. So I saved continuously every chance I got. And you were like... You don't have to save. Don't worry. It'll give you a chance to save. Like, nope, saving. I don't believe you. And then I blew up. It turned it, out I was wrong. Will was wrong in this case. And so it was a better choice to save. So if you do play Star Control 2 or the Urquan Masters, as it is called on GOG or whatever you, uh, you can, It's free. It's, oh. um, it's open source. What happened was that Activision owned the rights to the trademark Star Control but not the game itself. Right. And so they released the source code of the game under the name The Airquan Masters, which was the subtitle of the game Star Control 2. Um, you can get it for Android, even. It's oh. a shitty control scheme because <laughs> it's one of those fake joystick things. Oh, yeah. So good. Yeah. So, like, if you haven't played it, don't play it on Android. If you've played it a million times like me and you just occasionally want to dive back into the game <laughs> while you're sitting around doing nothing, you should download it on your Android device because it's great. Um, <laughs> all right. And I can play through it on that device because I you know how to avoid all the fights. You can't play the fights on touchscreen. Oh. Like, basically. Unless you have developed your ship to be overwhelmingly powerful. Like, you can um, just continuously get shot. Yeah. Slowly rotate towards them and fire. Yeah, but the mechanics don't work mm. on that device. So really don't play it on your Android. Alright. Unless you have played through it a million times and you know how to skip the fights and get all the things. And with that resounding recommendation. <laughs> literal best game ever made according to my childhood brain. Wow. And with that resounding <laughs> recommendation i think that maybe we should wrap up yeah i don't have much else to say i'm sure we could talk for longer but i think we should wrap up because we've been going it's been a while longer than we should have so if you would like to ask us any questions or send us any comments you can email us at contact at sidequests podcast.com and that is multiple side quests right many but only one podcast. Correct. So It's this podcast. Right. It's just this one. Yeah. I'm not going to make another one. No. It's a lot of work. So, sidequestspodcast.com. There's no dashes or anything. Yeah. Hyphens, underscores, nothing like that. And I'm Bryce. Uh, and I'm Will. And yeah, we are still at the stage in our podcasting career that if you send us anything, we'll be thrilled. It could be hate. It could be love. We'd be like, oh... Someone has recognized our existence. I don't know if I'd be thrilled if somebody hated it. I'd be impressed. I'd be impressed if you hated it. Yeah. Um, it's not that bad. I imagine you would have just turned it off in the first couple of seconds. Yeah. If you really hated it and then not thought about it again. Right. And if you made it this far. Like if my opinion or Bryce's opinion caused you to hate this podcast in a way that made you reach out and tell us how much you hated it, I'd be like... That is a strong opinion one what? of us had. Also, you made it to this far into the episode and then decided to yeah. email us? You've got to rethink your whole... Yeah, you clearly don't hate the podcast if you're even doing this. Right. You clearly enjoyed it in some way. And you're just experiencing a momentary frustration. Right. So, so I retract all <laughs> statements about sending us hate mail. Go hey, ahead. Yeah, whatever. Think deeply about yourself yeah, while you're saying whatever emotion you're experiencing understand it's only temporary <laughs> whoa that is deeper in a different way all right <laughs> goodbye good night <laughs>